Welcome to Black, Brown, and Bilingue, where our mission is to unite the black and brown communities through education, storytelling, and community engagement. The vision of Black, Brown, and Bilingue is to be part of creating a world in which Black and Brown identities are affirmed, bilingualism and biculturalism are nurtured, and equity is the driving force behind all that we do. Thank you for joining us again today. I am Lisette Jacobson, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid. I'm your other host. We are super excited to have our very first guest on Black, Brown, and Bilingue, and we couldn't have had a better person than Dr. James Cohen. Welcome. Hello. Hi. I'm so honored to be here, especially your first guest. Yes. And um, just to give the listeners uh, a little bit of background, I mean, you are really um, not only talking the talk, but walking the walk in terms of of diversity and social justice. Um, right now, you are the Associate Professor of ESL and Bilingual Education at Northern Illinois University. And as I was looking at, at some of the things, your awards, I'm just blown away. You, NIU College of Education Exceptional Contributions in Diversity and Social Justice Award. Um, the NIU Latino Resource Center recognized an ex as an exceptional outreach professor for the Latino community. You also received the NIU Presidential Commission on the Status of Minorities Deacon Davis Diversity Award. And I mean, the list just goes on. How do you do it? Snaps. Right, it's amazing. Well, I like to keep busy. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cohen, can you start off with um, telling us a little bit about yourself and your educational journey? My undergrad is, uh, Actually, when I was in high school, I didn't really want to be a teacher. I wanted to be a stockbroker. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I got to college. I went to University of Wisconsin-Madison for undergrad. And they, I, I don't know what happened, but I fell in love with English, you know, English literature. Mm. And, cause I, and, I, I was, and I thought, gosh, let me teach English. So I got into the College of Ed, and I, I went – or I, actually there it was College of Liberal Arts and Sciences with College of Ed classes. So anyway, I became a high school English teacher. Uh, but my mom always told me that I always wanted to be in the Peace Corps when I was a kid. And so when I graduated from UW-Madison, I taught one year in high school in, in Maryland, American Lit. And, I, and at the same time, I applied for the Peace Corps. And this was a huge pivotal time in my life because when I was, I was in Sri Lanka for a little over two years and I was teaching teachers English and that's where I learned what it means to be white. That's where I learned what it means to be a non-native English speaker. That's where I learned what it meant to be othered mm. and uh, that experience 
put me on a completely different trajectory. Because then I came back and I got a master's in TESOL, and then I got a PhD in, in uh, curriculum instruction with a focus on language and literacy. And then the, I took enough classes for equivalent of another master's in reading. And um, so my educational background is that. You know, I, I taught in several countries around the world and the official education, the university education was, is that. But I think the, the places where I, my education expanded the most was when I was traveling. What prompted you to become such a big advocate for linguistically and culturally diverse learners, particularly for like immigrants here in the United States? When I was doing my master's practicum, I was at the, the University of Veracruz in Jalapa. And my host family, I was staying with the host family, and my host brother took me to his university, to, to his English class, where he was studying English. And at the time, they were talking about, in California, the Proposition 187, basically, which is basically outlawed everything for undocumented immigrants. They couldn't obtain health care. They couldn't go to school. They couldn't do anything. Of course, it was found unconstitutional because we all know Plyler versus Doe, the 1982 uh, Supreme Court case said that you can't punish children for the decisions of their parents. So all undocumented immigrants, all people, all children, K, pre-K through 12, are allowed a free public education. Doesn't matter, it, no matter what their status is. So I remember sitting there and the people were at, his classmates were asking me about Proposition 187 in California. And I looked at him and I said, you know, I don't, I don't really know a lot about it. And I, I and to this day, I'm, I'm ashamed that I didn't know a lot about it. And I didn't know that it was outlawing people. So when I, you know, going ahead several years, and I was in my doctoral program collecting data for my dissertation, it turned out that all five of my, all five of the high school kids that I was interviewing, they revealed to me, and I never asked them their status, but they all revealed to me that all five of them were undocumented. Mm -hmm. And it was at the same time, I was looking at, you know, what I learned from my dissertation is how awful our society treats this group of people. And it's mainly based out of ignorance and, a, and a, an ideology that is, that is based on a false history of what the United States is about. Mm -hmm. So to make a long-winded answer to that short question, that's how I got into advocating and teaching and learning about undocumented immigration. It's through those experiences. Wow. Dr. Cohen, you, you mentioned earlier that in some of your international travel, you came to uh, a clearer vision of whiteness um, and, and, and othering. I wonder when you talk about advocacy for these, you know, black, indigenous people of color, um, that, that group there, um, what, what drew you, I guess, if you can talk in a little bit more detail, what drew you out of 
that comfort zone, right? There, there are lots of people who, who have seen things and, and uh, even as they learn different things, but they, they, they stay where it is comfortable. What, what pushed you outside of that comfort zone to, to a place where you're now willing to do a lot of the work that you do? I think I have to go back to my upbringing, to be honest, mm. um, and the experiences I had as a child. I, I'm Jewish. Everyone who knows me knows that I'm Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I, I actually tell all my students that I'm Jewish is because my one year teaching high school in Maryland, I had a student who yelled at me and said, you Jewed us again. I tell all my students that I'm Jewish. And the reason is, is because I don't want to, I don't want to put my students in a position where they accidentally say something stupid against Jews. And I don't want to, I don't want to hear it anyway. Right. And so that's one, but when I was in high school, I had uh, my tires slashed to my car. I had swastikas written in my driveway. Uh, I was called a dumb Jew, a stupid Jew in front of my teachers. And the teachers didn't do anything. Wow. And, you know, these kinds of experiences opened my eyes to a world that, to a hate that no one should see or feel or experience. It, this experience has being Jewish and having experienced discrimination opened my eyes to the understanding that there's a lot of hate in the world. And when I started seeing all this hate put on immigrants, I said, well, I need to do something. And I need to learn about it, right? And then when I got into, when I got to Northern, you know, 10 years ago, and I started teaching this class called Multicultural Education. You know, my introduction or my entryway or my gateway to the field of multicultural ed is through immigration and ESL, bilingual education, and second language acquisition and policies, language policies. But after coming here, re I realized very quickly that I needed to start learning about the black experience too. And I needed to start learning about the indigenous experience too. That's interesting you, you bring that up because we recently uh, released an episode called The Black-Brown Divide. And just for me as a Mexican-American woman, when I hear you say, you know, the shame that you didn't know about this proposition when you were in Veracruz, I, as an adult, have felt a lot of shame for not knowing my own history. Mm. And, and it's because I am a product of U.S. public schools. And I joke, but there's, there's serious, I'm serious when I say that the little that I do know in terms of like black history is, is way more than what I know about Mexican American history. Yeah. And I know very little black history, but I feel like I know even less. And um, it's, it's hard, especially in, in the role that I am in right now when working in a, in a school district that is largely Latino, where I don't know where to point um, students. I, I don't know. And so I remember in my own experience, I would default to the black experience because it was different. 
So I wasn't white and I wasn't black, but I defaulted to the black because I knew it was separate from white. Um, and so when Maurice and I discussed doing a podcast, though, we, we talked about this need to bridge the two communities because sometimes we are, we are pitted against each other and Absolutely. we are at odds. And um, so I, I'm very passionate about that because of my own experiences. My closest friends are, are black. And so it's just something that is very close to my heart. So economics is often the point that comes up when it comes to this divide between black and brown people and how there's this idea that immigrants um, take jobs from American workers and often at the expense of the black community. So what are your uh, thoughts on the division in general and then more specific on the economic competition? Well, I think I'll start with the last question first. <laughs> um, when people say that immigrants steal jobs, it's actually quite humorous because you look at the, you look at the Cato Institute, you look at, and the Cato Institute is, uh, is libertarian. So they're, uh, they're fiscally conservatives, socially liberal. And then you have these economists, academic economists, right? So you have all these different groups of people. And all three say immigration expands the economy. Without immigration, our economy be, would be worse than it is already, mm. period. I don't know anybody except for the haters who believe that immigration is bad for the country. That's one. Two, think about it this way. For every job that an immigrant takes, steals, if you want to use that word, takes, at least seven jobs are created or seven jobs are allowed. When they say they steal jobs, they do steal one, they do take jobs from one type of person. The person who drops out of high school, that is their competition. Mm. So whether it's a white person, a black person, another Latino, doesn't matter. When you drop out of high school, you are automatically competition for the uh, undocumented immigrants in particular, because no one else wants those jobs. Well, and, and we're consumers too, right? I mean, it's not like we're living under, and I say we, even though I'm not undocumented, but as a Latina, we are consumers too. You know, we have to operate and function within this. Well, that's another point. I mean, when people say, you know, there's a list, there's a list of these myths about undocumented immigration. I, I'll go through them. One, they don't pay taxes. They do pay taxes. They pay, you know, um, the big, big banks uh, gave them mortgages. So they pay uh, property tax, one. Two, they pay state taxes. They pay, uh, when they go to the grocery store, they pay taxes. When they go to the gas pump, they, take, they pay taxes. When they buy clothing, they're paying taxes. When they go buy food in a the restaurant, they're paying taxes. So they're paying taxes. The only tax that they technically aren't paying is federal income tax. However, the ones who have fake social security numbers, they're paying, they're, they are paying federal tax. And because of them, 
they are literally putting in up, upwards of 10 billion, with a B, dollars a year into Social Security, making it, allowing it to still be solvent. Mm. And they will never take it out because they can't. Mm. So when we're talking about, you know, the, they're, they're bad for the economy, uh-uh, it's the opposite. It's the exact opposite. And my argument is we should provide documentation to them. Mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan did it to 2 million undocumented immigrants. My and parents. Your, your parents, yeah. Yes. Black-brown divide is on purpose. It's actually society structures is structured in a way to pit, as you use the word pit, mm -hmm. or position one group against the other. I'll give you an example in the slave times, the t the, you know, in, in the antebellum times. When the, at the very beginning of slavery, the um, slave owners, you had indentured servant white people and you had free white people. Then you had enslaved black people and some free black people. The freed black people typically got out of the South immediately and tried to go to North or to Canada. But the indentured servant white folks versus the freed white folks, the, the, the plantation owners couldn't tell them apart. They didn't know how was, who, they, who was who. So what they ended up doing was they, they said, okay, let's get rid of this indentured service, servant business and we will only start importing black people. So it was the color of skin. That's when whiteness was created. Mm. Because whiteness was created in contrast to blackness. So that they could tell who was freed and who wasn't. Now, the, the plantation owners were really smart because they said, or I should say clever, they said to the white, the poor, because the majority of, people, more, majority of white folks did not own slaves. But they made it sound like, you know, you are better than those black folks over there because of your skin color, even though they were both dirt poor, both had no education, they were equal in, in, in every sense. So the plantation owners positioned the white folks, says, you know, we'll give you a little bit of land and we'll put, we'll put a bunch of slaves, we'll give you some slaves. Those slaves are my slaves, by the way, not yours. But you'll, you'll be working the land, having them work the land, and you'll be in charge of that. So now automatically, they um, felt superior. That's the East Coast. The West Coast had the Latinos. Yep. And if, if we understand our history, it wasn't until 1848 that, you know, the Hidalgo, the Hidalgo, um, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Yeah, yeah, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Um, the people did not cross the border. The border crossed the people, right? And, we, and the United States literally took a quarter of northern Mexico from Mexico after the Spanish, or after the Mexican-American War. All right, so my point is this. They implemented a lot, the white folks back then implemented a tremendous number of laws against brown folks on the West Coast. So the same mentality that the white folks did on the East Coast, they started implementing on the West Coast. Mm. And when you go into 
now, now let's move to current modern day. You have TV, social media, et cetera, telling us on a daily basis, look at that group of people and how nasty they are. Look at that group of people and how nasty they are. So when a Latino views a black person, mm-hmm. or a Latinx person views a black person in a negative way, unfortunately what you're doing is you're oppressing yourself and them and vice versa. When a black person views a Latinx person as less than, you are not only oppressing them, but you're oppressing yourself and you're pushing up white people. That's the ultimate thing. The way our society is structured is that white folks always end up on top and the black and brown folks are always ending up on the bottom. And I say almost, not always, but almost always. Of course, you, you have some anecdotes like President Obama and Oprah and Michael Jordan and you know these folks who are super wealthy who have made it. But those are the anomalies. And it's those anomalies that allow people to say, no, this country is not racist. That tokenism. It's tokenism. I would say, though, even with those anomalies, one of the things to think about in terms of, of, of wealth is that Michael Jordan can be worth a hundred million, two hundred million, half a billion dollars, and yet we have Jeff Bezos who is on his way to being a trillionaire. Oh, I, I wanted to say one thing also. Sure. I am not actually the the black brown divide. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really cautiously optimistic. Mm-hmm. that that's going to start fading away a little bit. I am too. And I'll say one reason why. When people become aware of their surroundings and the, the systemic racism that exists, then black folks and brown folks start understanding that it's the system that's the problem. It's not even white people. White people aren't necessarily the problem. It's the system that's the problem. Yes, it was created by white people, but Mm -hmm. white folks are not the problem. It's all of us together that we have to be fighting against the system. Well, and that was going to be my next question. As we work to deconstruct these systems of white supremacy and oppression, um, how significant do you think it is for black, brown, and other marginalized groups to work together? Oh, it's incredibly important. And how do you think we can do that, though, without feeling like there's not enough pie to go around because I think that's what that idea is, is that if if the black people get the pie, then the Latinos don't get any. And then if the Latinos get it, and I feel like that's the notion that we're up against. Um, So what do you think are some logical ways? That's a zero zero gain ideology. Hmm. There's plenty of money and whatever you need out there. Mm -hmm. That's that, that's, to me, that's not, that shouldn't even be thought of. Mm-hmm. If you create a business, if you create a product, if you create whatever it is that you want to do to make money, you'll make money. There's plenty of money out there. Mm-hmm. So it's not like um, if I make some, that's taking away from you. So that way of thinking should stop. Yes. It's, it's not even logical. When, when black folks understand 
the, the laws and the policies of brown folks that have been oppressing, oppressive onto brown folks. Mm -hmm. And brown folks have been, have start learning about the, 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 the systems and the laws and the policies that have oppressed black folks. When you start learning about each other, then you start realizing you are both victims. Mm -hmm. And once you start realizing that you are both victims, with agency, you, have, you do have agency, uh, then why you shouldn't be fighting against each other. In fact, there are plenty of white accomplices now also. Mm -hmm. If you look at the marches of today, the protests after the, the Floyd, the murder of Floyd, George Floyd, mm -hmm. in, this, in the 1950s and 60s, in the civil rights moment, movement, the majority of people marching were black. Who's marching today? Super hyper diverse. Yeah. In fact, I have a student who was telling me the other day that she went marching in her town mm -hmm. and the vast majority of the people in her, in her march were white folks. Mm -hmm. So to me, that is a positive. Yeah, we are making progress. I, I would agree with you. And I think as uh, we start to interact with one another and build those relationships, you, it's hard to hate what you know, you know what I mean? It's yeah. much easier to dislike or hate someone when you don't know anything about them, but we're much more interconnected today than we were back in, in the civil rights movement. What do you think though, because that brings me to another idea on how we don't want to centralize white voices, because I think that has been one of the criticisms in yes. when we have uh, marches and, and white people are at the forefront. And unfortunately, I know that there have been instances where I feel like I could be saying the same thing as my white counterparts, yet it is not as well received. Yeah, you're positioned differently, unfortunately. Because mm -hmm. um, I, I would hate for, for, for white co-conspirators to feel like they can't say or speak up because they are afraid of robbing and centralizing themselves. But we, the white folks in this situation really should not be the ones who are in charge necessarily, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I think black and brown folks should be. Mm -hmm. And I think um, we need to learn, open our eyes and listen more. And we meaning white folks and well, everyone actually, not just white, but everyone. <laughs> But I think also, like you said, well, if you, if you look at, you made a good point by centralizing black and brown voices. And that's what we need to do. Instead of the canon in our K-12 schools, as an example, of always being white history, white literature, what dead white men his literature in particular, we should be expanding that and make the canon include Maya Angelou and all these other folks who have written fabulous pieces of art, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If we centralize them, centralize those works of art and those pieces of literature, then, but continue to read Huckleberry Finn and continue mm -hmm. to read the other canon mm -hmm. or the current canon, I think that will expose all students to a greater understanding. I mean, think of it this way. I get students in the multicultural class who get so angry and they'll, they'll raise their hand and say, I am so angry right now. Why? 
because why, you know, I went to school for 12 years. I never learned any of this stuff before. Why did I have to come to college? And I'm a junior in college and I'm finally learning this stuff. How come I never learned this in the past? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we centralize more varied, diverse literature and history, gosh, I mean, it, 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 it would just open up the world to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something else that I wanted to comment on, this divide that we have, and we're, it, it's all created by biases, right? First, first of all, we don't live in a vacuum. We live in society, and society is constantly feeding us all of these biases. It's feeding us how to think. Mm-hmm. And when, when, you know, so we have these two different types of biases, right? We have the explicit bias which is the biases that we know we have, and then the implicit biases, the ones that were are subconscious, or un, you know, they're below our conscious level. And when we get angry or upset, and we're the the blood literally slows down to the front of the brain, and it starts going to the back of the brain, where the fight, flight, or freeze part of our brain is, and that's when our implicit biases take over. So when, if we allow our implicit biases to take over, that's when, you get in, when you're getting into an argument. And afterwards, and you calm down and say, oof, I shouldn't have said that. Mm-hmm. And it's because your implicit biases have taken over and are controlling what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. So, and acting and saying. There are plenty of ways of reducing the impact that our implicit biases have on us. One way is, like you said, get to know people. If you know that you have a problem with a certain group of people, well, with all sincerity, ask somebody if they don't mind sitting down with you and answering some questions. Getting to know them. Not like some zoo animal where you're going and observing. <laughs> but a, you know, a, an honest-to-goodness, forthright discussion. Mm-hmm. And I think it's when when people are sincere and when people know that they really are there just to learn, how can you turn away somebody who really honestly, sincerely wants to learn? Mm -hmm. Now I can't speak for black and brown folks because I know that they are constantly teaching white folks about their experiences. And I know it gets extremely exhausting and it's annoying. So, and I'm not volunteering black and brown folks to listen and, and be the teachers of all these white guys, white, white gals and girl, guys and gals. But, you know, there are plenty of videos too that they can be watching. There are plenty of books that they can be reading. And there are plenty of people who are still willing and open to interacting with them. I, we definitely think that's something we need more of. I think we've become so intolerant and just unwilling to sit down and have a conversation and I am willing to engage with pretty much anyone um, <laughs> and, and have a conversation because I feel like that's how we, we um, can bring about change. But we are educators and so in terms of advocacy, what do you think are some concrete ways our, our teachers right now who, who um, have black and brown students in their classroom and who have been witnessing some of this divide. Is there any tips that you could give them? All teachers have to start with themselves. 
all people have to start with themselves. Very JQ Adams of you. Yeah. <laughs> well, he has been my mentor for 12 years now. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely that Frarian notion of staying unfinished for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, you have to start with yourself and understand your biases and understand why you think the way you think, how you became the cultural being that you are. And then, and that takes a while, but also you need to start learning uh, how to interact with others in a culturally competent way, mm -hmm. right? And it's usually by honest questions and sincere questions, not derogatory type questions or with an agenda attached to the question. When a teacher has an issue in the classroom, if they don't feel like they are qualified or up to the challenge of dealing with it, then every school district has people who are very adept at, adept at, at working and engaging these types of conversations. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would recommend they do if they themselves don't, know, don't feel comfortable doing it. Mm -hmm. But they Dr. need to sit there and listen. Yeah. Dr. Cohen, I wonder, too, what that, that next step is. After working with self, after being able to, to work in an interconnected fashion with other people, I think oftentimes people miss out then on that next level of advocacy, and it requires them to know that this is a system. So I personally can do something, and we personally can do something, but, but can you talk a little bit about that need for us to also have a, a systems mindset and look at the idea that, that some of the things that show up and have been showing up for hundreds of years were designed to show up? So remember I told you that I, I spent my semester, my sabbatical semester, reading books about the Black experience in the United States. Most of those texts were on the system, the systemic level. Michelle Alexander's book, for example, The New Jim Crow, it talks about mass incarceration. Phenomenal book. Phenomenal. It's one of my favorite books of all time. It explains really, really, in almost layman terms, how we got to where we are now in terms of over 90% of the, the um, prison population, black men, black and brown men. It explains the, how the Supreme Court has influenced everything, how these laws and policies have influenced them. It's at the system level. And if we, we, when we're interacting with people, we need to move away from pointing the finger and saying, you know, you are racist. No, that doesn't get us anywhere. In, in fact, um, there's a guy who's, who coined, I think his name is Richard Spencer. He coined the term alt-right. Yes. And when people, when this reporter asked him, do you consider yourself a racist? He said, absolutely not. So here is the most, by definition, racist person in the world, right? He's a neo-Nazi. And yet he doesn't call himself a racist. He calls himself a racialist, meaning he wants to be, he wants all the black and brown folks and any white folks who want to live with them on 
one end of the country, and then all the white folks on another end of the country. He literally wants to split the United States in half. Mm -hmm. So this concept of race, racist is, is a term that even racists can't stand. That's part of Brett's work, what he's doing right now. And he has shared with me that the quickest way to shut someone down is right. throw out that racist word or racism or anything with race. It is the quickest way to end the conversation and you yes. will not make any progress. You're right. And that's why uh, Maurice is right in that we always have to bring the discussion up to the systemic level. Mm -hmm. so I'll give you an example. When the GIs came back from World War II and they had the GI Bill, you know, the soldiers came back from World War II and we had this GI Bill. And it said that the federal government was going to back all mortgages of GIs. And the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democrats, said, we love the idea, but give it to the states to control. And what did they end up doing? The federal government said, all right, we'll give it to the states to, con to control because they wouldn't have gotten their support for this bill if they didn't say that the states could have control of it. So what did all these white bankers do? Not just in the southern states, but the northern states too. They gave loans to white people. Mm -hmm. And they only gave loans to 2% of the black soldiers. Same happened to Latinos, just had to throw it in there. Well, right, right, right. <laughs> So, you know, when people talk about affirmative action, there's a great book by a guy named Ira Katz-Nelson, and it's called When Affirmative Action Was White. And if you look at our history of the United States, all these policies, all these programs, the housing programs, the, the housing projects, they weren't created for black people and brown people. They were created for white people because there was a housing shortage. And the federal government didn't even allow black people to live in these white, in these white uh, housing projects in the 1950s. So, I mean, if you look at our history, you can't not see that every single policy, big, big policy that the federal government employed was to suppress and oppress black and brown people and raise white people. And that's what we need to be talking about. Because in order to change the system, in order to change the United States and make it more equitable, we need to raise the level of talk from individual racism to systemic and institutional racism. What in the classroom, for example, in the schools, what policies are in place to make it so that black and brown people are in the basic level classes? What policies are in place that make it that the Asian and the white people are in the honors and the AP classes and the advanced classes? Why is that? Discipline practices, all of those things. In, in discipline. You know, let's talk about discipline for a second. The stereotypes of the black male. This just totally gets me. Think of it this way. Black men are known as what? Hyper-aggressive, dangerous, and the stereotype is they're hypersexual, they're perceived and also older, they're lazy. I'm and they're sorry? perceived to be older than what they really are. Yeah. Perceived to be larger than they actually are. Exactly. Yeah. So think about where these stereotypes came from. These stereotypes go back 
close to 400 years because it was the slave owners who were whipping. They were the hyper-aggressive. They were the ones whipping the black people, both men and women and children. They were the ones raping the black girls, the slave girls in the fields. They were the ones who were, so they were hyper-violent, hyper-sexual, and hyper-lazy because they would sit in their home and expect everyone else to do their work for them. So what they did was they projected their own self-perception onto the black folks so that they could continue treating them that way. And that is something, I'm, I'm sorry to interject here, Dr. Cohen. Um, no. Tamika Mallory spoke about that when she said that we learned violence from you. And I, in one of our episodes, I talked with Maurice about the fact that that gets ascribed as an inherent trait of yeah. black and brown people has been used to legitimize um, some of these practices. You know, we have to incarcerate them because our streets will be safer. We, you know what I mean? And so it's that, that violence that is ascribed to us that you're exactly right is what has been used for 400 years to keep us oppressed. And we really yeah. need to combat that. It drives me crazy. Yeah. And just to bring it back to a school setting, you know, when, when a white student does something, it's typically ascribed to external factors. Right. Whereas, you know, the parents are going through a divorce or they're just having a really rough time at home. Whereas for our black and brown children, it's ascribed as an inherent trait. They're aggressive, they're yeah. angry. And, and those things are deemed less forgivable. I, I just, when I hear you say that, it just totally struck a chord with me. So when you have a teacher who doesn't understand the history of where these stereotypes originated and how they've, they've um, been exaggerated over the years and perpetuated over the years, mm -hmm. literally 350 plus years, then they're thinking, well, no, that black boy is, or that brown boy is, is dangerous or is, you know, and so something that I have to deal with, you know, <laughs> let me rephrase that. Something that I work with my pre-service teachers on is when a teacher, a pre-service teacher says to me, I'm afraid of black men. So, okay, I, I acknowledge that. I, you know, I, I, I hear you. First of all, why? And second of all, you're going to, you're an elementary school teacher. When are you going to start being afraid of that little black boy? When does the black boy become a black man? Mm. And if you are afraid of a third grader who is your height, are you going to, that black boy is going to totally know that you're afraid of him and he's going to take advantage of you. Oh yeah. So, and he's get, he's, and you're going to uh, end up kicking him out of the classroom. And then his, then his, uh, educational career is already starting on a bad foot and he's only in third grade or fourth grade. Sometimes even younger. Sometimes yeah. younger. Right. Great conversation here, uh, Dr. Cohen. I feel like we can go on and on with you. I feel like we need to bring you back for like a part two with Dr. Cohen. <laughs> uh, you really are just a, a, a wealth of knowledge. So as we normally do on every episode, we end with one little tidbit that we want our listeners to walk away with. And so instead of Maurice and I sharing a little bit of something, you know, can you tell us what you want our listeners to walk away with? 
when you're interacting with children, acknowledge their race, acknowledge their ethnicity, acknowledge their culture, acknowledge their language, but also acknowledge their humanity. Everyone's a human. So when people, you know, I've heard folks say, especially against undocumented immigrants, they don't belong here and they are illegal. People, are, people cannot be illegal. Everyone has the right to exist. They may not have documentation in the United States, but they have the right to exist. So a person is not illegal. So stop, stop using that word. Use the word undocumented. When we use words that are derogatory, it allows us to act and treat people in an inhumane way. When we think of these refugees coming across the southern border and when President Trump says illegal aliens, so they're not human, which therefore means, oh, okay, I don't have a problem putting them in dog cages. I don't have a problem separating them from their parents. I don't have a problem putting them in a prison-like cell where coronavirus is running rampant. I don't have a problem with that because they're not humans. So when we use the terminology that we use to degrade and dehumanize people, it allows us to commit acts of inhumanity upon them. And that is something which is a travesty, a travesty in, its, in and of itself. So the thing I'm leaving you with is we need to view everybody as human beings and we need to watch our language, not because it's politically correct, but because it's respectful. It's treating people as humans. Wonderful. Well said. Yes, incredibly well said. Well, um, again, always a pleasure, Dr. Cohen. I feel like we, we're going to have to bring you back for a part two. I, feel like. <laughs> I, just, I, I just could talk for hours. Um, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I am Lisa Jacobson, I'm, and I am one of your hosts. And I'm Maurice McDavid, your other host. Muchas gracias for tuning in.